Hey there, tonight we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 23. So I'll just give you a minute to open your Bibles to there. That's Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter. Nor will, you, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of, the, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, Without neglecting the former, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you! teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the land in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, you've said that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, work in us now, um, work through your spirit, work through your word, that we may become more like you. Amen. Uh, Well, friends, I want you to uh, pretend that you're a farmer uh, and, and one day you're out, um, you're walking around your farm and you get to the, you get to the chicken coop um, and you, you, you poke your head in and you realise that, that one of your hens has laid some eggs. And so each day um, for over the next few days, next few weeks, you keep making the rounds and you go into the coop and you keep looking in and you see the way that the hen is looking after her eggs and you can't, um, you're amazed, you're transfixed at how much devotion, care and love this hen is showing the eggs. Um, You notice that she is a pure example of devotion. No egg is left unattended, all are nursed and over the next few weeks, next few days, a few of the eggs begin to crack. Some of, the, some of the fledglings, some of the birds, are able to actually get out of the egg. They crack through, but some of them need help, and you notice that you see the hen gently help and guide some of the, some of the chicks to leave their eggs. But then, as they get out, you notice her t- care takes on a different form. You notice that she feeds them, that she cleans them, that she protects them, you know that you notice that everywhere that she goes, the hen, the little chicks follow. Everywhere the chicks go, the hen is always there. They lack absolutely nothing, and if anything threatens them, 
she defends them, calling her chicks to herself and shielding them under her wings. Well, friends, I don't need to tell you that this this behaviour is not just confined to the, the animal world. It is an illustration of how Jesus says that God relates to his people. Uh, It's an illustration of incredible tenderness, devotion, uh, strength and love between the Creator and His creation. Um, Though as we read our passage today, we do notice a difference, don't we? Instead of flocking to Him, God's people are unwilling. Uh, And why is this? Well, it's because a fox has entered the hen house. It's because they have been led by hypocritical and unfaithful religious leaders. And so, in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus respond. Uh, In this chapter, we see Jesus at both his most tender and also at his most terrifying. We're going to see him tear down the current inept and unfaithful leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisaic leadership of God's people is going to end in this chapter. But we will also see him build up a new leadership, one that is exemplified by himself and styled after his character. So we're at point one, Jesus tears down. The relationship between God um, and his people, Israel, and and the the religious leaders of, of the day has always been troublesome. Uh, God has always wanted his people to live in a relationship with him, to love him, to serve him. Uh, But constantly getting in the way were the so-called shepherds of Israel uh, who think only of themselves uh, and capitalise at the expense of the people. Um, In the book of Ezekiel, God confronts this problem head on. Um, Chapter 34, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. You see, where God longs to look after his people, the so-called shepherds of Israel are busy spiritually cannibalising the flock of God. They don't know God and they don't serve the people. And so come forward 500 years from the days of Ezekiel, Nothing's changed. Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees has always been troublesome. But this relationship has taken on a new level of of opposition since he's entered Jerusalem, hasn't it? You'll remember in in the previous two chapters where the crowds celebrate the coming of, of Jesus into Jerusalem and sit listening at his teaching. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are always there trying to, to trick him, trap him in what he's saying. And I mean, this, this would be fine if it was, well, maybe not fine, but you, you could understand this if, if it was in a private setting. 
an honest exploration of what Jesus is trying to say. But this is all public, in front of the crowds, in front of the flock of Israel that the Pharisees are getting in the way. And as their opposition grows more and more physical and confrontational, Jesus has decided that the time has come. It's time for the flock to be defended. Just as God announced a woe against the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel's day, so now Jesus begins his. So turning to the crowd, he begins by warning them about the Pharisees. Jesus begins by summarising the two characteristics of Pharisaical leadership. The the first is in verse 3 and can be summarised as, they do not practise what they preach. Now, Jesus is careful as he's delivering his, his rebuke. The, the Pharisees are teachers of the law, right? So, they, they teach from the Old Testament. They teach from God's Word. Therefore, Jesus warns his disciples and the crowd that they need to be listened to. It is, after all, God's Word that they are speaking from. It needs to be followed and it needs to be obeyed. However, Jesus is saying, don't then look towards the Pharisees as examples too. You see, the Pharisees, they added laws and rituals on top of what was stated in the Bible. Such laws and rituals, they were possible for a Pharisee that was leading a a leisurely and a scholarly life. But for the labourer, for the carpenter, for for the worker outside, it required much more effort. These added rituals had the effect on people's lives like adding stones in a hiker's pack day after day, each step requiring more effort and each day getting harder and harder. It's the fitness influencer who sprays their face with water before filming to mimic sweat and then proceeds to to lift hollow weights as they're being filmed all the while saying to the people watching on, you know, work harder. Can't you see how hard I'm working? The Pharisees added laws on top of what God said and polluted his good word. A stunning contrast to Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The second characteristic is in verse 5. Everything they do is done for the people to see. Now the Pharisees read their Old Testament. They could recite it. They knew parts of it off by heart. They knew the laws, but they fell into the trap of doing these things to please people instead of God, to magnify themselves rather than magnifying God. You see, they knew that in um, in Exodus 13, God said that his word was to be be a reminder on on their forehead. And so they took this literally. They created a little box, it's called a phylactery, and they positioned it on the front of their forehead. If you're looking at someone, where do you look? You look right at the eyes. You could always see it right there in front of everyone. And in this little box, they put little pieces of scripture. And this led to something that I would call look at meism. You can imagine it, can't you? Like as Caiaphas the Pharisee walks down the street, I'm thinking, you know, is my box, is the little box on my head big enough for everyone to be able to see? And then as he arrives home, walking in, talking to his wife, Martha, (laughs) um, you know, is it it big enough? 
Was it bigger than the other Pharisee? Could you see it as I was walking down the street? It had nothing to do with biblical observance and everything to do with their own reputation. Look at me. They did the same thing with the tassels on their robes. Now, we need to be careful. Jesus had tassels on his robe, as did almost every Jewish person. It was to remind them to follow the commandments. But again, it's so easy to turn something good into something bad. The Pharisees made theirs larger than anyone else. Look how much I follow the commandments compared to you. Look at me. They love the honour of being seated prominently in public gatherings. They loved being called Pharisee. They loved the respect they got from people. Look at me. So the effect of all of this is that they just eclipsed God. Instead of pointing God's people to him, they got in the way. They blocked out the light. They stood in front of it. They caused all the focus to be on them and jealously guarded it. And what was the effect of this? Well, they led all the people astray. Spiritual cannibalization was not only a problem in Ezekiel's day, it was happening in Jesus' day too. And so, in verse 13, and for much of the chapter, Jesus addresses the Pharisees head on. So, seven times, he uses the same expression. Woe. Uh, this is a word that needs to be understood both as an expression of regret um, on the one hand, but also compassion on the other. It isn't given as a form of divine judgment. This is not Jesus um, giving a final judgment on them. We will see that Jesus leaves the door open, even if it is a slither for the Pharisees to repent. But it does make clear that judgment will come. It is an expression filled with the groaning of a God who dearly wishes his people, and in this case the leaders, to turn back to him before it's too late. But these statements of woe also serve as a tearing down of Israelite religious leadership. The first two woes deal with the Pharisees shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself has been declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Jesus has been winning disciples. More than that, Jesus has made clear that he is the Christ who has come. But the Pharisees shut their eyes to what they see, they take no notice and they fail to enter the kingdom. But it's, it's worse than that, isn't it? See, they don't allow others to go in either. When they discredit Jesus publicly, they distract the crowds. They cause the crowds to respond in unbelief. And ultimately, we're going to see this as, as Jesus is arrested and at his trial when the crowd, riled up by the Pharisees, demand that Jesus be executed. And their failure to understand Scripture has other impacts. For in verse 15, when they gain a convert, they teach them nothing of Christ and just fill their ears with their false teaching in verses 16 to 24, Jesus calls them blind guides. Jesus had already told his followers to always tell the truth. That was back in chapter 5. The Pharisees, however, get into arguments about what con constitutes the truth. What constitutes an oath? Uh, what constitutes a binding agreement? Well, they spend so much time counting each grain of cumin or each, each leaf of dill um, but then spend so little time caring about justice, mercy and faithfulness. 
what really matters to God. For all their religious zeal, they cannot perceive the right ways of God. I mean, can you imagine going to, to Echo Point and you've seen an ad that says, oh, there's a, a guided tour of the Three Sisters. You get to do a bit of canyoning, uh, a bit of rock climbing, uh, and you'll also have this, this, this guide who's also going to point out all the important features of the, of the valley. And so you get there, you get out of your bus or car, and then you're greeted by the guide who is completely blind. They wouldn't be able to see anything, they can't point out any feature. What's that? I don't know. It's useless. For all their knowledge, power and traditions, the Pharisees function like blind guides when it comes to spiritual matters. They're a danger to themselves and others and unable to see what really matters to God. In verse 25 to 28, the fifth and sixth ways, Jesus contrasts the outward with the inward. The Pharisees were so careful with outward things. Uh, things that people could see, that they neglected the more important aspects of inner cleanliness. In the end, their dedication to the outward, outside appearance leaves them dead inside. You can imagine going to a graveyard, you look at all the graves there, uh, made out of granite, maybe even marble in some case. In the first century, Palestine, hewn out of rock, so much labour and effort um, you know, there's fresh flowers, ornate epitaphs, beautiful stonework. But inside, it's just death. The Pharisees are the walking dead, spiritual zombies, dedicated to religion, which looks impressive on the outside, but inside, there is no love for God, no desire for change or repentance, and no love for God's people. In the final way, Jesus links the Pharisees to those who persecuted the prophets. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all faithful proclaimers of God's word, but all persecuted by those who were meant to be Israel's leaders. Jesus ends by basically saying in verse 32, go on then, here I am. Finish the job. I mean, it sounds a little bit, sounds a little bit hyperbolic, doesn't it? But, but you and I both know that Jesus has said three times now that he's going to be killed. Now, it's important to note that Jesus does leave the door open to the Pharisees here. And I think the illustrations that Jesus has chosen indicate that. The Pharisees may be spiritually blind, but we've seen who gives sight to the blind. They may be unclean on the inside, but we've seen who can bring cleanliness. They may be dead on the inside, but we've seen who gives life. Jesus can bring all these things for the Pharisees if they repent. He may be judge, but the judgment day hasn't arrived yet. So what do we do with this first part of the chapter? The first lesson from the Pharisees is the danger of self-centred leadership. How easy is it for us to think that ministry is about my performance, my charisma, my effort. How easy is it to forget that it is God who is behind our ministry, God who works in the hearts of people and it's God's gospel we preach, His message that we proclaim when we dilute it, change it, 
when we refuse to teach certain parts of it, we're spiritually cannibalizing the people that we care about. It is God's gospel, his message and our privilege and duty to proclaim it unchanged. Secondly, it warns against hypocritical leadership. Paul will say in 1 Timothy 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Christian leaders don't just preach the gospel, they live it. Friends, we have been walking with the King. Are you meeting with the King daily in your Bible reading? The Word of God is living and active. It pierces the heart and makes us more like Christ. Is there anything that you need to repent of? But thirdly, beware the tragedy of dead religion. How easy can it be to think that our righteousness is achieved by our own good works? This was the false teaching the Pharisees taught and Israel fell into believing. Friends, our righteousness is not based on anything that we achieve. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous and sinless Son of God, took on himself the full weight of sin of the world. And as he bore the just judgment for that, the wrath of God, He bore the consequence and paid the full price for our sin. Our sin is then counted as his who bears the just punishment. Just as he bore our sin then, we then bear Christ's righteousness. The righteousness that you have as you stand before God is not yours. It's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It belongs to Christ which he gives you when you are united to him, in, to him in faith. And so Jesus concludes with a final word of warning. Like the vineyard owner in the parable two weeks ago, Jesus says he is sending his servants to proclaim the gospel. See, these, these aren't trivial matters. Jesus' anger and frustration might be surprising for us here. We might be a little bit taken aback by how intense it is. But we need to remember, we need to remember what is at stake. This is Israel who has been led astray. This is God's people. And when we're dealing with people, we're not just dealing with with just flesh and bone, right? We're dealing with souls, right? Eternal souls. When you have a child... Um, when a child is conceived, we need to have in our minds that this child is going to live forever. And when Jesus is looking around at the crowd, he's not just seeing flesh and bone, he's seeing souls. And so this battle isn't over reputation or anything like that, it is about the spiritual life of his people. And so when Jesus looks out at the crowd, scattered by the hypocritical, self-centred and spiritually dead leadership of the Pharisees, he sees souls that need saving, who need genuine, godly, faithful leadership. And no one is giving it. 
And so after tearing down the leadership of the Pharisees, he decides to build up another. One where God's people will be led not by bad shepherds, but by a good shepherd, the right leader who will show everyone how to live through his life and through his example. And so we're at point two, Jesus builds up. Instead of the Pharisees, Jesus tells the crowd there to look to God. Verse 8 to 10. But you are not to be called a rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now friends, the, the relationship here is, is one of, of, of extreme closeness and, and tenderness and relationship. In the, in the first century, if you were good enough, smart enough, well-connected enough, you'd, you'd be able to get a rabbi, someone who could actually teach you, instruct you. But this was only for the privileged few. In the kingdom Jesus is bringing in, all of God's people will have this privilege. All will be able to sit under his teaching. No matter what age, stage or background, from the youngest to the oldest, God will be their personal teacher. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Not only do we call God our teacher, we also call him our father. I can tell you the truth, there is, there is very little that gets me up in the night. But one thing that is, that is sure to get me up is my son crying. Um, there are times too when he's sick, um, and I'll be worrying about him. So before I go to bed, I enter, enter his room um, and I, I listen to his breathing, check his heartbeat, all those sorts of things. I'll listen to the sounds of his breath. And I love him so much. But I'm a sinner, right? And I fail. Some of us don't have fathers. We, we, some of us may not have good fathers. But we all have a heavenly Father who loves us more than we can actually possibly do to our own kids. Uh, He is your Father and teacher and He loves you so much. And Jesus' lament in verses 37 to 39 is evidence of that. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings... But Jesus also points us to an example of leadership in verse 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In a few days, after Jesus says this, he's going to prove how much he loves, how much Jesus will prove the love of the Father. In a few days, Jesus will exemplify this kind of leadership won't he? In a few days, Jesus will show just how far he is willing to go to bring God's scattered sheep back into the fold. And we know this, don't we? Uh, in Matthew 20, 28, it's still ringing in our ears as Jesus was, was nearing Jerusalem, he said this, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the epitome of servant leadership, not hypocritical, unloving, selfish, pharisaic leadership. No, Jesus puts the flock first. In a complete contrast, we've seen Jesus strengthen the weak, 
heal the sick, bind up the injured. He's brought back the strays and searches for the lost. And if it wasn't clear enough, in John 11.10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, have you ever been on a farm? Ever, ever had anything to do with sheep uh, or cows or any herd animal? Um, when, I was, when I graduated from high school, I helped out with the, the morning milking on a farm, on a dairy farm. And so we'd get the, the dogs would bring the cows in, the cows would go into the uh, small little paddock before they went into the milking. And as I would go in between the cows, as I walked into where we would be doing the milking, you would look at the cows in the eye. They look back at you and there, you could tell that there was just nothing going on. <laughs> in, there was nothing going on in their heads. Um, and if you've ever been to the Easter show, you, you'll know what I mean. When you look at a sheep, you see where it lives. Um, I... I would never die for a sheep (laughs) or for a cow. Um, But what what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so with this as the example, this is what we are to follow. The greatest among you will be your servant. What a privilege. Like as, we, as we listen to what it means to be the good shepherd, right? We're all, we all love this. We all love this vision of what it means to serve. We all love Jesus for doing this, don't we? It's stunning. It's a stunning love. And wouldn't that be a fantastic love, fantastic example for us to actually show each other here? We all love it. We all see it. We all know it. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could actually see us all imitating the good shepherd? And so, brothers and sisters, what an act to follow. Let's be like him in how we serve each other. Let us follow our Saviour and look to others as more important than ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you sent your son to be a leader that we can follow. Father, we thank you for taking upon himself the sin of the world and dying in our place for our sin. Father, we're sorry for the times that we are hypocritical, we don't listen to your word. Father, we just ask that You help us to lead each other, lead your people. Amen.